Chapter Two of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris and Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode Six, Chapter Two. I engage a box at the opera, in spite of Henriette's reluctance. Monsieur de Bois pays us a visit and dines with us. My darling plays him a trick. Henriette argues on happiness. We call on Dubois, and my wife displays her marvelous talent. Monsieur Dutillat. The court gives a splendid entertainment in the ducal gardens. A fatal meeting. I have an interview with Monsieur d'Antoine the favorite of the Infante of Spain. The happiness I was enjoying was too complete to last long. I was fated to lose it, but I must not anticipate events. Madame de France, wife of the Infante Don Philippe, having arrived in Parma, the opera house was opened, and I engaged a private box, telling Henriette that I intended to take her to the theater every night. She had several times confessed that she had a great passion for music, and I had no doubt that she would be pleased with my proposal. She had never yet seen an Italian opera, and I felt certain that she wished to ascertain whether the Italian music deserved its universal fame. But I was indeed surprised when she exclaimed, What, dearest? You wish to go every evening to the opera? I think, my love, that, if we do not go, we should give some excuse for scandal-mongers to gossip. Yet, should you not like it, you know that there is no need for us to go. Do not think of me, for I prefer our pleasant chat in this room to the heavenly concert of the seraphs. I am passionately fond of music, darling, but I cannot help trembling at the idea of going out. If you tremble, I must shudder. But we ought to go to the opera, or leave Parma. Let us go to London, or to any other place. Give your orders. I am ready to do anything you like. Well, take a private box as little exposed as possible. How kind you are! The box I had engaged was in the second tier, but the theater being small, it was difficult for a pretty woman to escape observation. I told her so. I do not think there is any danger, she answered, for I have not seen the name of any person of my acquaintance in the list of foreigners which you gave me to read. Thus did Henrietta go to the opera. I had taken care that our box should not be lighted up. It was an opera buffa. The music of Burellano was excellent, and the singers were very good. Henrietta made no use of her opera glass, except to look on the stage, and nobody paid any attention to us. As she had been greatly pleased with the finale of the second act, I promised to go get it for her, and I asked Dubois to procure it for me. Thinking that she could play the harpsichord, I offered to get one but she told me she had never touched that instrument. On the night of the fourth or fifth performance, Monsieur de Bois came to our box, and as I did not wish to introduce him to my friend, I only asked what I could do for him. He then handed me the music I had begged him to purchase for me, and I paid him what it had cost, offering him my best thanks. As we were just opposite the ducal box, I asked him, for the sake of saying something, whether he had engraved the portraits of their highnesses, he answered that he had already engraved two medals, and I gave him an order for both in gold. 
he promised to let me have them and left the box. Henrietta had not even looked at him, and that was according to all established rules, as I had not introduced him. But the next morning he was announced as we were at dinner. Monsieur de la Haine, who was dining with us, complimented us upon having made the acquaintance of Dubois, and introduced him to his pupil the moment he came into the room. It was then right for Henrietta to welcome him, which she did most gracefully. After she had thanked him for the patrizone, she begged he would get her some other music, and the artist accepted her request as a favor granted to him. Sir, said Dubois to me, I have taken the liberty of bringing the medals you wish to have. Here they are. On one were the portraits of the Infanta and his wife. On the other was engraved only the head of Don Philippe. They were both beautifully engraved, and we expressed our just admiration. The workmanship is beyond all price, said Henriette, but the gold can be bartered for other gold. Madame, answered the modest artist, the medals weigh sixteen sequins. She gave him the amount immediately, and invited him to call again at dinner-time. Coffee was just brought in at that moment, and she asked him to take it with us. Before sweetening his cup, she inquired whether he liked his coffee very sweet. "'Your taste, madam,' answered the hunchback, gallantly, "'is sure to be mine. "'Then you have guessed that I always drink coffee without sugar. "'I am glad that we have that taste in common.' "'And she gracefully offered him the cup of coffee without sugar. "'She then helped de la Haine and me, "'not forgetting to put plenty of sugar in our cups, "'and she poured out one for herself "'exactly like the one she had handed to Dubois. "'It was much ado for me not to laugh.' for my mischievous Frenchwoman, who liked her coffee in the Parisian fashion, that is to say very sweet, was sipping the bitter beverage with an air of delight which compelled the director of the mint to smile under the infliction. But the cunning hunchback was even with her, accepting the penalty of his foolish compliment and praising the good quality of the coffee. He boldly declared that it was the only way to taste the delicious aroma of the precious berry. When Dubois and De La Haine had left us, we both laughed at the trick. But, said I to Henrietta, you will be the first victim of your mischief, for whenever he dines with us, you must keep up the joke, in order not to betray yourself. Oh, I think I can easily contrive to drink my coffee well sweetened, and to make him drink the bitter cup. At the end of one month, Henrietta could speak Italian fluently and it was owing more to the constant practice she had every day with my cousin, Geneton, who acted as her maid, than to the lessons of Professor de la Haye. The lessons only taught her the rules, and practice is necessary to acquire a language. I had experienced it myself. I learned more French during the too short period that I spent so happily with my charming Henrietta than in all the lessons I had taken from Delacroix. We had attended the opera twenty times without making any acquaintance, and our life was indeed supremely happy. I never went out without Henrietta, and always in a carriage. We never received anyone, and nobody knew us. Dubois was the only person, since the departure of the good Hungarian, who sometimes dined with us. I do not reckon de la Haye, who was a daily guest at our table. Dubois felt great curiosity about us, but he was cunning and did not show his curiosity. We were reserved without affectation, and his acquisitiveness was at fault. One day he mentioned to us that the court of the Infante of Parma was very brilliant since the arrival of Madame de France, and that there were many foreigners of both sexes in the city. 
Then, turning to Henrietta, he said to her, Most of the foreign ladies whom we have here are unknown to us. Very likely. Many of them would not show themselves if they were known. Very likely, madam, as you say, but I can assure you that, even if their beauty and the richness of their toilet made them conspicuous, our sovereigns wish for freedom. I still hope, madam, that we shall have the happiness of seeing you at the court of the duke. I do not think so, for, in my opinion, it is superlatively ridiculous for a lady to go to the court without being presented, particularly if she has a right to be so. The last words, on which Henrietta had laid a little more stress than upon the first part of her answer, struck our little hunchback dumb, and my friend, improving her opportunity, changed the subject of conversation. When we had gone, we enjoyed the check she had thus given to the inquisitiveness of our guest, but I told Henrietta that, in good conscience, she ought to forgive all those whom she rendered curious, because... She cut my words short by covering me with loveling kisses. Thus supremely happy, and finding in one another constant satisfaction, we would laugh at those morose philosophers who deny that complete happiness could be found on earth. What do they mean, those crazy fools, by saying that happiness is not long-lasting? And how do they understand that word? If they mean everlasting, immortal, unintermining, of course they are right. But the life of man not being such... Happiness, as a natural consequence, cannot be such other. Otherwise, every happiness is lasting for the very reason that it does exist. And to be lasting, it requires only to exist. But if by complete felicity they understand a series of varied and never interrupted pleasures, they are wrong. Because by allowing after each pleasure the calm which ought to follow the enjoyment of it, we have time to realize happiness in its reality. In other words, those necessary periods of repose are a source of true enjoyment, because, thanks to them, we enjoy the delight of recollection, which increases twofold the reality of happiness. Man can be happy only when, in his own mind, he realizes his happiness, and calm is necessary to give full play to his mind. Therefore, without calm, man would never be completely happy, and pleasure, in order to be felt, must cease to be active. What do they mean by that word, lasting? Every day we reach a moment when we long for sleep, and although it be the very likeness of non-existence, can anyone deny that sleep is a pleasure? No, at least it seems to me that it cannot be denied with consistency, for the moment it comes to us, we give it the preference over all other pleasures, and we are grateful to it only after it has left us. Those who say that no one can be happy throughout life, speak likewise frivolously. Philosophy teaches the secret of securing that happiness, provided one is free from bodily sufferings. A felicity that would thus last throughout life can be compared to a nosegay formed of a thousand flowers so beautifully, so skillfully blended together, that it would look one single flower. Why should it be impossible for us to spend here the whole of our life as we spent the last month? always in good health, always loving one another, without ever feeling any other want or weariness. Then, to crown that happiness, which would certainly be immense, all that would be wanted would be to die together, in an advanced age, speaking to the last moment of our pleasant recollections. Surely that felicity would have been lasting. Death would not interrupt it, for death would end it. 
we could not even then suppose ourselves unhappy unless we dreaded unhappiness after death and such an idea strikes me as absurd for it is a contradiction of the idea of an almighty and fatherly tenderness it was thus that my beloved henrietta would often make me spend delightful hours talking philosophic sentiment her logic was better than that of cicero in his tusculan disputations but she admitted that such lasting felicity could exist only between two things who lived together and loved each other with constant affection healthy in mind and in body enlightened sufficiently rich similar in tastes in disposition and in temperament happy are those lovers who when their senses require rest can fall back upon the intellectual enjoyments afforded by the mind sweet sleep then comes and lasts until the body has recovered its general harmony on awaking the senses are again active and always ready to resume their actions the conditions of existence are exactly the same for man as for the universe i might almost say that between them there is perfect identity for if we take the universe away mankind no longer exists and if we take mankind away there is no longer an universe who could realize the idea of the existence of inorganic matter now without the idea nihil est since the idea is the essence of everything and since man alone has ideas besides if we abstract the species we can no longer imagine the existence of matter and vice versa i derived from hedriette such great happiness as that charming woman derived from me we loved one another with all the strength of our faculties and we were everything to each other she would often repeat these pretty lines of the good la fontaine soyez-vous la une la autre au monde toujours beau toujours divers toujours nouveau tenez-vous les de trois compé pour rien le reste and we did not fail to put the advice into practice for never did a minute of ennui or of weariness nor did the slightest trouble disturb our bliss the day after the close of the opera dubois who was dining with us said on the following day he was entertaining two first artists primo cantatore and prima cantatrice and added that if we'd like to come we could hear some of their best pieces which they were to sing in a lofty hall of his country house particularly adapted to the display of the human voice henrietta thanked him warmly but she said that her health being very delicate she could not engage herself beforehand and she spoke of other things when we were alone i asked why she had refused the pleasure offered by dubois i should accept his invitation she answered and with delight if i were not afraid of meeting at his house some person who might know me and would destroy the happiness i am now enjoying with you if you have any fresh motive for dreading such an occurrence you are quite right but if it is only a vague groundless fear my love why should you deprive yourself of a real and innocent pleasure if you knew how pleased i am when i see you enjoy yourself and particularly when i witness your ecstasy in listening to fine music well my darling i do not wish to show myself less brave than you we will go immediately after dinner the artist will not sing before besides as he does not expect us he is not likely to have invited any person curious to speak to me we will go without giving him notice of our coming without being expected and as if we wanted to pay him a friendly visit 
he told us that he would be at his country house, and Caudagna knows where it is. Her reasons were a mixture of prudence and of love, two feelings which are seldom blended together. My answer was to kiss her with as much admiration as tenderness, and the next day at four o'clock in the afternoon we paid our visit to Monsieur de Bois. We were much surprised, for we found him alone with a very pretty girl, whom he presented to us as his niece. I am delighted to see you, he said, but as I did not expect you, I altered my arrangements, and instead of the dinner I had intended to give, I invited my friends to supper. I hope you will not refuse me the honor of your company. The two virtuosi will soon be here. We were compelled to accept his invitation. Will there be many guests? I inquired. You will find yourself in the midst of people worthy of you, he answered triumphantly. I am only in sorry that I had not invited any ladies. This polite remark, which was intended for Henrietta, made her drop him a curtsy, which she accompanied with a smile. I was pleased to read contentment on her countenance, but alas, she was concealing the painful anxiety which she felt acutely. Her noble mind refused to show any uneasiness, and I could not guess her inmost thoughts because I had no idea that she had anything to fear. I should have thought and acted differently if I had known all her history. Instead of remaining in Parma, I should have gone with her to London, and I know now that she would have been delighted to go there. The two artists arrived soon afterwards. They were the primo cantore, Lashi, and the prima donna, Baglioni, then a very pretty woman. The other guests soon followed. All of them were Frenchmen and Spaniards of a certain age. No introductions took place, and I read the tact of the witty hunchback in the omission. But as all the guests were men used to the manners of the court, that neglect of etiquette did not prevent them from paying every honor to my lovely friend, who received their compliments with that ease and good breeding which are known only in France, and even then only in the highest society, with the exception, however, of a few French provinces, in which the nobility, wrongly called good society, show rather too openly the haughtiness which is characteristic of that class. The concert began by a magnificent symphony, after which Lashi and Baglioni sang a duet with great talent and much taste. They were followed by a pupil of the celebrated Vandini, who played a concerto on the violoncello, and was warmly applauded. The applause had not ceased when Henrietta, leaving her seat, went up to the young artist, and told him, with modest confidence, as she took the violoncello from him, that she could bring out the beautiful tone of the instrument still better. I was struck with amazement. She took the young man's seat, and played the violoncello between her knees, and begged the leader of the orchestra to begin the concert again. The deepest silence prevailed. I was trembling all over, and almost fainting. Fortunately, every look was fixed upon Henrietta, and nobody thought of me. Nor was she looking towards me. She would not have then ventured even one glance, for she would have lost courage if she had raised her beautiful eyes to my face. However, not seeing her disposing herself to play, I was beginning to imagine that she was only indulging in a jest, when she suddenly made the strings resound. My heart was beating with such force that I thought I should drop down dead. But let the reader imagine my situation when, the concerto being over, well-merited applause burst from every part of the room. The rapid change from extreme fear to excessive pleasure 
brought on an excitement which was like a violent fever. The applause did not seem to have any effect upon Henrietta, who, without raising her eyes from the notes, which she saw for the very first time, played six pieces with the greatest perfection. As she rose from her seat, she did not thank the guests for their applause, but, addressing the young artist with affability, she told him, with a sweet smile, that she had never played on a finer instrument. Then, curtsying to the audience, she said, I entreat your forgiveness for a moment of vanity, which has made me encroach on your patience for half an hour. The nobility and grace of this remark completely upset me, and I ran out to weep like a child in the garden where nobody could see me. Who is she, this Henrietta? I said to myself, my heart beating, and my eyes swimming in with tears of emotion. What is this treasure I have in my possession? My happiness was so immense that I felt myself unworthy of it. Lost in these thoughts which enhance the pleasure of any tears, I should have stayed for a long time in the gardens if Dubois had not come out to look for me. He felt anxious about me, owing to my sudden disappearance, and I quieted him by saying that a slight giddiness had compelled me to come out to breathe the fresh air. Before re-entering the room I had time to dry my tears, but my eyelids were still red. Henrietta, however, was the only one to take notice of it, and she said to me, I know, my darling, why you went into the garden. She knew me so well that she could easily guess the impression made on my heart by the evening's occurrence. Dubois had invited the most amiable nobleman of the court, and his supper was dainty and well arranged. I was seated opposite of Henrietta, who was, as a matter of course, monopolizing the general attention. But she would have met with the same success if she had been surrounded by a circle of ladies, whom she would certainly have thrown into the shade by her beauty, her wit, and her distinction of her manners. She was the charm of that supper, by the animation she imparted to the conversation. Monsieur de Bois said nothing, but he was proud to have such a lovely guest in his house. She contrived to say a few gracious words to everyone, and was shrewd enough never to utter something witty without making me take a share in it. On my side, I openly showed my submissiveness, my deference, and my respect for that divinity, but it was all in vain. She wanted everyone to know that I was her lord and master. She might have been taken from my wife, but my behavior to her rendered such a supposition improbable. The conversation had been falling on the respective merits of the French and Spanish nations. Dubois was foolish enough to ask Henrietta, to which she gave preference. It would have been difficult to ask a more indiscreet question, considering that the company was composed almost entirely of Frenchmen and Spaniards, in about equal proportion. Yet my Henrietta turned the difficulty so cleverly that the Frenchmen would have liked to be Spaniards, and vice versa. Dubois, nothing daunted, begged her to say what she thought of the Italians. The question made me tremble. A certain Monsieur de la Combe, who was seated near me, shook his head in a token of disapprobation. But Henrietta did not try to elude the question. What can I say about the Italians? she answered. I know only one. If I am to judge them from all that one, my judgment must be most certainly favorable to them. But one single example is not sufficient to establish the rule. It was impossible to give a better answer, but as my reader may well imagine, I did not appear to have heard it, and being anxious to prevent any more indiscreet questions from Dubois, I turned the conversation into a different channel. 
the subject of music was discussed, and a Spaniard asked Henrietta whether she could play any other instrument besides the violoncello. No, she answered, I had never felt any inclination for any other. I learned the violoncello at the convent to please my mother, who can play it very well, and without an order from my father, sanctioned by the bishop, the abbess would never have given me permission to practice it. What objection could the abbess make? That devout spouse of our Lord pretended that I could not play that instrument without assuming an indecent position. At this the Spanish guests spit their lips, but the Frenchmen laughed heartily and did not spare their epigrams about the over-particular abbess. After a short silence, Henrietta rose, and we all followed her example. It was the signal for breaking up the party, and we soon took our leave. I longed to find myself alone with the idol of my soul. I asked her a hundred questions without waiting for the answer. Ah, you were right, my own Henrietta, when you refused to go to that concert, for you know that you would raise many enemies against me. I am certain that all those men hate me, but what do I care? You are my universe. Cruel darling, you almost killed me with your violoncello, because, having no idea of your being a musician, I had thought you had gone mad, and when I heard you, I was compelled to leave the room in order to weep undisturbed. My tears relieved my fearful oppression. Oh, I entreat you to tell me what other talents you possess. Tell me candidly, for you might kill me if you brought them out unexpectedly, as you had done this evening. I have no other accomplishments, my best beloved. I have emptied my bag all at once. Now you know your Henrietta entirely. Had you not chanced to tell me about a month ago that you had no taste for music, I would certainly have told you that I could play the violoncello remarkably well. But if I had mentioned such a thing, I know you well enough to be certain that you would have bought me an instrument immediately, and I could not, dearest, find pleasure in anything that would weary you. The very next morning she had an excellent violoncello, and far from wearying me, each time she played she caused me a new and greater pleasure. I believe that it would be impossible, even to a man disliking music, not to become passionately fond of it, if that art were practiced to perfection by the woman he adores. The vox humana of the violoncello, the king of instruments, went to my heart every time that my beloved Henrietta performed upon it. She knew I loved to hear her play, and every day she afforded me that pleasure. Her talent delighted me so much that I proposed to her to give some concerts, but she was prudent enough to refuse my proposal. But in spite of all her prudence, we had no power to hinder the decrees of fate. The fatal hunchback came the day after his fine supper to thank us, and to receive our well-merited praises of his concert, his supper, and the distinction of his guests. I foresee, madam, he said to Henrietta, all the difficulty I shall have in defending myself against the prayers of all my friends who will beg me to introduce you to them. You need not have much trouble on that score. You know that I never receive anyone. Dubois did not again venture upon speaking of introducing any friend. On the same day I received a letter from young Capitani, in which he informed me that, being the owner of St. Peter's knife and sheath, he had called on Franzia with two learned magicians, who had promised to raise the treasures out of the earth, and that to his great surprise Franza had refused to receive him. He entreated me to write to the worthy fellow, and to go to him myself if I wanted to have a share of the treasure. 
I need not say that I did not comply with his wishes, but I can vouch for the real pleasure I felt in finding that I had succeeded in saving that honest and simple farmer from the impostors who would have ruined him. One month was gone since the great supper given by Dubois. We had passed it in all the enjoyment which can be derived both from the senses and the mind, and never had one single instant of weariness caused either of us to be guilty of that sad symptom of misery, which is called a yawn. The only pleasure we took out of doors was a drive outside of the city when the weather was fine. As we never walked in the streets, and never frequented any public place, no one had sought to make our acquaintance, or at least no one had found an opportunity of doing so, in spite of all the curiosity excited by Henrietta amongst the persons whom we had chanced to meet, particularly at the house of Dubois. Henrietta had become more courageous, and I more confident, when we found that she had not been recognized by anyone either at that supper or at the theatre. She only dreaded persons belonging to the high nobility. One day, as we were driving outside the gate of Colorno, we met the Duke and Duchess, who were returning to Parma. Immediately after their carriage, another vehicle driving along, in which was Dubois, with a nobleman unknown to us. Our carriage had gone only a few yards from theirs, when one of our horses broke down. The companion of Dubois immediately ordered his coachman to stop in order to send to our assistance. Whilst the horse was raised again, he came politely to our carriage, and paid some civil compliment to Henrietta. Mr. Dubois, always a shrewd courtier, and anxious to show off at the expense of others, lost no time in introducing him as Monsieur Dutilot, the French ambassador. My sweetheart gave the conventional bow. The horses being all right again, we proceeded on our road, after thanking the gentlemen for their courtesy. Such an everyday occurrence could not be expected to have any serious consequences. But, alas, the most important events are often the result of very trifling circumstances. The next day, Dubois breakfasted with us. He told us frankly that Monsieur Dutilot had been delighted at the fortunate chance which had offered him an opportunity of making our acquaintance, and that he had entreated him to ask our permission to call on us. On Madame, or on me? I asked at once. On both. Very well, but one at a time. Madame, as you know, has her own room, and I have mine. Yes, but they are so near to each other. Granted, yet I must tell you that, as far as I am concerned, I should have much pleasure in waiting upon His Excellency, if he should ever wish to communicate with me, and you will oblige me by letting him know it. As for Madame, she is here. Speak to her, my dear Dubois for I am only her hum very humble servant. Henrietta assumed an air of cheerful politeness, and said to him, Sir, I beg you to offer my thanks to Monsieur Dutilot, and to inquire from him whether he knows me. I am certain, madam, said the hunchback, that he does not. You see he does not know me, and yet he wishes to call upon me. You must agree with me that if I accepted his visits, I should give him a very singular opinion of my character." Be good enough to tell him that, although known to no one, and knowing no one, I am not an adventuress, and therefore I must decline the honor of his visits. Dubois felt he had taken a false step, and remained silent. We never asked him how the ambassador had received our refusal. Three weeks after the last occurrence, the ducal court, residing then at Colorno, a great entertainment was given in the gardens, which were to be illuminated at night.
Everybody had permission to walk about the gardens. Dubois, the fatal hunchback appointed by destiny, spoke so much of that festival that we took a fancy to see it. Always the same story of Adam's apple. Dubois accompanied us. We went to Colorno the day before the entertainment and put up at an inn. In the evening we walked through the gardens, in which we happened to meet the ducal family and suite. According to the etiquette of the French court, Madame de France was the first to curtsy to Henrietta without stopping. My eyes fell upon a gentleman walking by the side of Don Luis, who was looking at my friend very attentively. A few minutes after, as we were retracing our steps, we came across the same gentleman, who, after bowing respectfully to us, took Dubois aside. They conversed together for a quarter of an hour, following us all the time, and we were passing out of the gardens when the gentleman, coming forward and politely apologizing to me, asked Henrietta whether he had the honor to be known to her. I do not recollect ever having had the honor of seeing you before. That is enough, madam, and I entreat you to forgive me. Dubois informed us that the gentleman was the intimate friend of the Infanta, Don Luis, and that, believing that he knew madam, he begged to be introduced. Dubois had answered that her name was de Arqui, and that, if he was known to the lady, he required no introduction. Monsieur d'Antoine said that the name of Diarque was unknown to him, and that he was afraid of making a mistake. In that state of doubt, added Dubois, and wishing to clear it, he introduced himself, but now he must see that he was mistaken. After supper, Henrietta appeared anxious. I asked her whether she had only pretended not to know Monsieur d'Antoine. No, my dearest, I can assure you. I know his name, which belongs to an illustrious family of Provence, but I have never seen him before. Perhaps he may know you. He might have seen me, but I am certain that he never spoke to me, or I would have recollected him. That meeting causes me great anxiety, and it seems to have troubled you. I confess it has disturbed my mind. Let us leave Parma at once, and proceed to Genoa. We will go to Venice as soon as my affairs there are settled. Yes, my dear friend, we shall then feel more comfortable, but I do not think we need be in any hurry. We returned to Parma, and two days afterwards, my servant handed me a letter, saying that the footman who had brought it was waiting in the anteroom. This letter, I said to Henrietta, troubles me. She took it, and after she had read it, she gave it back to me, saying, I think Monsieur de Antoine is a man of honor, and I hope that we may have nothing to fear. The letter ran as follows. Either at your hotel, or at my residence, or at any other place you may wish to appoint, I entreat you, sir, to give me an opportunity of conversing with you on a subject which must be of the greatest importance to you. I have the honor to be, etc. D'Antoine. It was addressed, Monsieur Farusi. I think I must see him, I said, but where? Neither here nor at his residence, but in the ducal gardens. Your answer must name only the place in the hour of the meeting. I wrote to Monsieur d'Antoine that I would see him at half-past eleven in the ducal gardens, only requesting him to appoint another hour in case mine was not convenient to him. I dressed myself at once in order to be in good time, and meanwhile we both endeavored, Henrietta and I, to keep a cheerful countenance, but we could not silence our sad forebodings. I was exact to my appointment, and found Monsieur d'Antoine waiting for me, 
as soon as we were together, he said to me, I have been compelled, sir, to beg from you the favor of an interview, because I could not imagine any surer way to get this letter to Madame de Arqui's hands. I entreat you to deliver it to her, and to excuse me if I give it to you, sealed. Should I be mistaken, my letter will not even require an answer, but should I be right, Madame de Arqui alone can judge whether she ought to communicate it to you. That is my reason for giving it to you sealed. If you are truly her friend, the contents of that letter must be as interesting to you as to her. May I hope, sir, that you will be good enough to deliver it to her? Sir, on my honor, I will do it. We bowed respectfully to each other and parted company. I hurried back to the hotel. End of chapter 2